Well, good afternoon and welcome uh, to Willingdon. My name is Willie. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at church. And I have the privilege of beginning a brief uh, two-week prayer series entitled Chasing, uh, Chasing God's Heart. Uh, and so we will be taking a look at the Lord's Prayer over the next two weeks. And of course, in the middle of that, we're celebrating uh, the end of 2019 with the Prayer Summit on New Year's Eve. And as been mentioned already, we do have the uh, Chasing God's Heart prayer devotional available for you uh, out in the lobby, and I encourage you to pick up uh, one of those. Often as I speak to people about prayer, uh, there are certain things that all of us, I think, say at some point in our prayer life or thinking about prayer. People will say, well, I don't know how to pray, or I'm self-conscious about praying. I don't know which words to use, and I struggle with prayer. Uh, I, I don't want to pray out loud with people because I'm nervous that I'm going to say the wrong thing. And uh, I was thinking about that and thinking about, okay, where are the times in my life where I think my prayer life has grown the most, where I have developed my thinking and my practice of prayer most profoundly? And I was reflecting on that, and a story came to mind of one of those seasons, and I think it kind of applies to all of us. So 2003, uh, November, my wife and I went to Europe for a a trip. We have some friends there, and they said, hey, come and visit us. And so we did that, and it was one of those vacations where you're trying to fit in as much as you can, because we were thinking, well, we're not sure if we're going to get back to Europe, so we have to go do everything. And so we were uh, mostly in London and in Paris, and uh, we had quite the pace. So at the end of the vacation, it was one of those where you get home and you go, oh, I just can't wait to get to work so I can slow down. Right, because the vacation was just, we got to see this and got to see that. Well, we got home and my wife was quite fatigued. And initially we thought, well, it's jet lag. And then when we jumped back in, you know, three young boys and we were both uh, working in ministry at the church. And, and we thought, well, you know, it just takes a little while to adjust. And, and, but the fatigue persisted for her. And she went to a chiropractor and the chiropractor, as he was adjusting her, said, you have some very large lymph nodes. You should go to a doctor. Goes to the doctor, and the doctor, long story short, says, we need to run some tests. What are you looking for, doctor? Uh, we're going to do a biopsy because we are looking for lymphoma. And we went, oh, that's much more than fatigue. So the tests were done, I believe the day was December 23rd. So you don't get test results at that time of the year back then uh, until the new year. So we spent Christmas waiting praying, wondering how serious this was going to be, wondering how ill Gwen was going to be as we, we speculated on what the lymphoma diagnosis, potential diagnosis could mean. So we prayed. We prayed alone. We prayed together. We prayed together. I think we prayed like many people pray in a variety of ways. You pray like, God, I promise to, you know, give more money if you heal my wife. Right? Like we start bargaining with God. We start doing all kinds of things with God. We get mad at God. So we were doing all that kind of praying together and alone. In fact, at one point during the week, we actually started fighting. And my wife goes, why are you mad at me? I can't help that I'm sick. I said, I'm not mad at you. I'm just a man and I need to fight something. I need to do something and I can't do anything. I'm just agitated. I can't take on your disease for you. I can't fix anything. And I was agitated. Right? As men, we want to do something. There was nothing to do except pray. 
Well, that week I was also writing a sermon for the next Sunday. And my habit when I write sermons is I listen to worship music as I write. And the music I was listening to that week, uh, the songs that hit me kept being songs that didn't talk about God's comfort. They actually talked about God's sovereignty. They talked about the glory of God. It had nothing to do with illness or care during difficult times. But what slowly happened to both of us that week, in our desperation, through our times of prayer, alone and together, through listening to worship, was that God became bigger than the potential diagnosis. And at the end of the week, we sat down and we said, you know what? God is sovereign. God is good. We don't know what the diagnosis will be come beginning of January. But if you are sick, God is with us and he is present. And he will find a way to carry us through. If you are well, God is present and he is sovereign and we will carry on. And so that whole week, it was that grappling. And I find the best times to pray that we learn the most are, is actually in our place of desperation, right? It's in when life is darkest. Then we don't worry about the words we're saying. Then we're not worried about finding the right words. We're not worried about what people think. We just pray. And that's when I think the best prayer lives are birthed. I think there's another thing that happens. And Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, uh, put it this way. He said, the function of prayer is not to influence God. Okay, think about that. The function of prayer is not to influence God. It is, he said, it is to change the nature of the one who prays. It is to change the nature of the one who prays. That week, God changed my wife and I to align our will with his, to say, God, you are sovereign. We submit ourselves to you. We know that if it's bad news or good news, you will be present and we trust you regardless of where this road takes us. Now, in that story, the good news was when we got our results, she did not have lymphoma. And she had to figure out other reasons why the fatigue was what it was. Uh, and there's still health things that, that she struggles with tied to fatigue that go back to some of those early days and prior to that. But it's in desperation that, that we find out and we learn and discover our prayer lives quite often. It's in that place that we are changed. It's in that place I think we pray best when we're desperate. It's in that place that we are formed and learn what prayer is because we draw closer to him increasingly regardless of the outcome, not because of the outcome. And we felt peace irrespective of the result of the biopsy. See, prayer is an interesting thing because people have all kinds of interesting and strange ideas about prayer. I think for some people, it's, it's what you do when everything else fails. fails. You say, well, I might as well pray because I haven't been able to control things myself. And that is why I pray. Or for some people, it's, well, you have to pray the right formula. You have to say things the, exactly the right way. And then God will answer because we're trying to control God so that we get the kinds of outcomes that we want. For some people, you have to say the right cliche, the right phrase, so that we sound spiritual. For some places and people that I've met, it's, well, you have to pray loud and with passion and emotion, otherwise God won't hear you. We know in some religions that you have to pray exactly the same thing at the same time every day, and it's this reciting this thing. It's not describing a relationship. It's that you're trying to do all the right things so maybe God will give you what you want or need. 
For some religions, it's a prayer wheel or prayer flags or different ways that, that people try and get the, the God they believe in to respond in some way that they want. I think the other piece that's interesting, and this surveys show this, is that regardless of whether people believe in God or not, when life is difficult and they're at their end of, their end of and we're at the end of our rope, we will most likely pray. Because that's what we do. We hope. Now, it might be superstition. It might be something that we say, well, I've tried everything else. It might not work. But in those places, we will pray with the hope that God is present. We know that people in Jesus' day had all these different kinds of ideas around prayer. In the book of Matthew, chapter 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. So around Jesus, around his disciples, they were observing that people who who were worshiping idols, uh, that they were praying on and on and on and on, hoping that somehow the idols they worship would respond to them in some way that would benefit them. So we know that was going on in Jesus' day. We also know that the Jewish community had a set prayer rhythm. So if you were a Jew, there was three times a day that were set aside for personal prayer. And we know that in Jesus' day that people prayed in the synagogues. We know sometimes people prayed on the street corners and some of that was good and appropriate. We also know that some people prayed on street corners so that everyone could hear them. And so that they would think, oh, there's a spiritual person. We know all that was going on. And we know the disciples were watching all of this. So in Luke chapter 11, the first verse, it tells us that Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished... One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So why the question that way? The question is a reference to John the Baptist. And the common practice in Jesus' day was that disciples followed a rabbi or a teacher. And that teacher would teach his disciples to pray in the method of that teacher. So the disciples saw John the Baptist teaching his disciples to pray. They had seen Jesus pray. And so now they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And that brings us to the Lord's Prayer, uh, which we will look at from Matthew chapter 6, which is page 811 in your pew Bible. So listen as I read the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This morning we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. The beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the beginning of that prayer is, is pregnant with meaning. In fact, each statement, each phrase in there is pregnant with meaning, much more than we often see when we just read it. So when Jesus says, pray like this, pray our Father. The very first word is, you'll notice he doesn't say pray your Father, pray my Father. He prays the plural, pray, pray our Father. He's saying this is a corporate prayer. This is a prayer that reflects the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Our Father, collectively, not just you individually. It is us together, is what Jesus is saying. 
is that we are a community of faith together, a family of faith together. It's acknowledging that everyone who claims the name of Christ is equal before God, and God calls us together because we are equally loved, equally forgiven, equally adopted by God. You might not like each other, but God loves you. And you're all part of the same family, and you're going to spend eternity together. This is not an I prayer. This is a we prayer, is what Jesus is saying with those first two words. And like many Jewish prayers, the Lord's Prayer was most likely used in church services. It was a corporate prayer that they prayed together. But it also had very significant uh, implications because when Jesus prays our, our Father, he is also speaking about the historic implications of what he is saying, his introduction. Because in, Jewish, in the Jewish world, they did not speak of Father very often. If you read through the Old Testament, you will not see the concept of Father uh, that is spoken very often. So as soon as Jesus says, our Father, he is actually saying to the Jews something very specific to them. He is taking them immediately back to God as creator. God who created the human race. God who brought out the people of God in the book of Exodus following the story of Genesis. God who called a people to himself. As soon as he's saying, our Father, he is saying, remember that God. The God who freed you from slavery. Who made you a family. The God who wants to dwell among you because he, brought, he was with them in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And then towards the end of the book of Exodus, he told them how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was built to house the presence of God. So when Jesus says, pray our Father, he is saying so much more than we read into it uh, just in our time. Jesus is teaching them, about who God is. He's teaching them to pray together. He's teaching the disciples also that they could pray anywhere because in Jewish life, the temple was thought to be the place where God was. But as soon as you go back in history, he is saying God is always present with his people because God traveled with the people of God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to pray. You can pray wherever you are is what he is saying. And so he is reframing the thinking of the disciples and how they understood prayer. And now he's saying, God wants to be present with you as you pray. And as we read in the Bible towards the, towards the end, the last book of the Bible in Revelation, which is a picture, a description of God with his people and, and God's people with him. So he is invoking the presence of God intimate relationship with God. You can pray to God anywhere is what he is telling them now. You are not stuck in the temple. In this rare description in the Jewish thought of saying, God, you are our father and praying to him as our father. Identifying God as the one who brought them out of slavery, who created them to be a people who are free in relationship with him. Jesus also taught the disciples that prayer is intimate. When he says, our Father, he is speaking in the Aramic language. This prayer wasn't in Greek, it was in Aramic. And in the Aramic language, when he says, Father, the closest English we would have to that would be Daddy. Right? It wouldn't be Dad, it wouldn't be Father, it actually would be Daddy. It's this very intimate intimate description of the relationship between a child and their father. Typically something a young child would say, to a father. I don't call my dad daddy. 
right? If I, I call him dad. My boys who are all in their, their 20s, they don't call me daddy. They would just say dad. But Jesus is saying Abba, daddy. That is how he is relating to God here. He's saying your God is intimate. Your God is close. Your God is approachable like, like a, a wonderful earthly father. He is nearby. He is intimate. Which would be very different than all the religions that are meeting uh, or that are worshiping their gods around Israel. Because all those religions would never see God as intimate. All those religions would never see God as personal. God is someone who is distant. God is someone to be feared. God is someone who we are going to try and do the right things in how we sacrifice and how we worship to get his attention. And hopefully he'll bless us. And in their case, usually it was the God of war, the God of fertility, or the the God of uh, harvest, or something like that. So to say, no, God is intimate is completely different than every other world religion. Saying God is personal. So saying our Father, praying our Father makes us realize that we can do so with a rich sense of privilege, that we can go to him. Not because of anything we have done or anything we have earned, but because he is our Father. Jesus taught the disciples that prayer connects heaven and earth. So he, so he told them to pray, Our Father, who is in heaven. And heaven and earth have always overlapped with each other because God has always intervened in the affairs of humanity while at the same time, his sovereign plan for history is unfolding. That is who he is. He is both imminent and transcendent. Imminent, he is here with us. Transcendent, he is over and above us because he is sovereign. This is the Christmas season where we celebrate Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is present with us. That is the reality of, who, reality of who he is. Because if you are a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, God in you. He is closer to you than your very breath. That is the beauty and wonder of the intimacy of God. While at the same time, he is our Father in heaven. He is not limited by creation. He is not limited by time and space. He is overall, he is beyond all chaos, yet, yet he is personal and approachable. We pray to God who is both intricately connected to us and yet sovereign over us. Jesus taught his disciples to focus on God first. Holy be your name. I think this is probably the most important part of this prayer. Holy be your name. God, may you be above all. You are the only one whose name is to be called holy. You are the only one who is worthy of our worship as human beings. You are the only one who deserves our time and attention and adoration. Holy be your name, God. You know, what we say about a person's name tells us what we think of their character. When you put a person's name down, when you make fun of their name, that is saying, well, I don't think very much of you. When we say, holy is your name, we're saying, God, your name is above every other name. When we say, God, may your name be holy, it's a statement that leads us into praise and worship of the one true God, that he is the one who is worthy of God, who deserves glory. I don't know about you, but I get pretty uptight when I hear people abuse the name of God. When God is used as a swear word, when God is used in any context other than holy is your name, it bothers me. Now, I don't know if your name rhymes with anything, so it can be abused easily. My name is Willie. 
And when people say that something is done haphazardly, that they don't care about how it's done, they'll say, well, that was done willy-nilly, right? Which I don't appreciate. I don't know if you have something that rhymes with your name, where you go, well, I don't like it when my name's used that way. I know when you pick kids' names, I know one of the things we would do is we would go through, what rhymes with that name? So how is, how is some kid in grade six going to give my kid a hard time because of what rhymes with their name, right? It's one of the things parents do. So when God's name is abused, when God's name is used as a swear word, when God's used, name is used to bring condemnation, or the most common way God's name is misused is when we say, because we're surprised by something, excited by something, we say, oh my God, right? You hear it all the time in, in English cultures. It's a constant. So now God's become an exclamation mark at the end of a sentence because I've been surprised by something. And every time I hear that, I kind of, a little twitch comes. Because I go, no, God is holy. May your name be holy. You are king of kings and lord of lords. That is who you are. That's what we sing about. That's what we declare. When we say, may your name be holy, we say, God, you are sovereign. I submit my life to you. You are the only one I'm going to give my worship to. You're the only one I'm going to give my adoration to because your name is holy. That is who you are. My heart's desire is to honor you. Not myself, not anyone else, but you. That is my heart's desire. In prayer, that can even become misconstrued because throughout history, Satan has always tried to get us to take glory for ourselves rather than for God. He, tried, he did that in the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve, you're pretty great. God's actually worried about you knowing as much as he does. So why don't you actually eat from this tree of knowledge? <clears throat> and you'll be just like God, right? Take the glory for yourselves. He tried to tempt, tempt Jesus when Jesus was in the, in the wilderness. Take the glory for yourself. You don't have to trust your father. Take the glory for yourself. It even shows up in our prayer lives. You pray for someone and there's an answer to prayer and they come back to you and say, hey, you prayed for this and this, this ailment and I was healed. Thank you for praying. Your prayers were great. And you say, hey, I'm pretty good at this prayer thing, you know. Friends, it's never about us, right? Because it's not the one who is praying. It's the one we pray to. It's never the one who is praying. It's not about a pastor praying, an elder praying. Now, God has given certain people gifts in, in praying, gifts of healing and different things like that, but it's always about him. It's never about us. And we can easily misconstrue that. Even when we say, well, no, I can't pray because my prayers aren't good enough. You need to pray. You're actually saying, God, you can't work through me, which is minimizing who God is. So even to push away prayer, because we say, well, I'm not sure about the words. It's actually to push away God. Because God will speak through you. He'll give you the words to say. Because they're his words. See, that's who God is. That is the beauty and wonder of God. To say he is holy is to speak the language of angels. Isaiah chapter 6. says, one angel called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or in the book of Revelation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. To pray holy is your name is to say, God, act in such a, way, such a way that the world would see your greatness and praise you for who you are. Because holy is your name.
You are above all. You are king of kings. There is no other like you. Jesus also taught the disciples that a healthy fear of God conquers all other fears. So when we say holy is your name, we are recognizing his sovereignty and we are recognizing that he is the one to fear. And by fear, I do not, I do not mean be afraid of as if someone's going to hurt you. By fearing God, what I mean is awe and respect and wonder. It is that kind of sense of fear. It is holy fear. It is the wonder of who God is. See, Satan tries to get us to fear everything else. It seems like in North America, anxiety is ramping up at at quite a pace. That's fear. And Satan tries to get us to fear. He tries to get us to actually try and control things ourselves. He tries to get us to actually try and manipulate things for our purposes, ourselves, in our own way. And God says, no, when you fear me, I actually conquer all other fears because every power on this earth, everything is subject to him. So actually when we fear him, it conquers all our other fears because we give our fears to him. The one who can actually do something about them. So to pray, holy are you God, is actually to recognize a healthy fear of God. Because to give him the highest honor is to see our fears conquered in him. The Bible tells us not to fear 365 times. God knows we're going to struggle with fear. And Jesus did too. Jesus said this in John chapter 14. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then note the contrast. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Trouble and fear, right? Worry, anxiety, that's what that is. That's what Jesus is describing. He said, don't look for the world to settle these things for you. How does the world tell us to settle them? Well, if you have enough money, then you, then you won't be afraid or worried. If you have the right position, you won't be afraid or worried. If you have the right status, you won't be afraid or worried. Right? The world tells us to chase certain things. And Jesus says, I don't give you the peace that the world gives you. Why? Because the peace the world gives you will never give you peace. There is no money that is enough. There is no position that is enough. There is no status that is enough. We know that. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Why? Because holy is your name. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Because he is your creator. He is the one who knows you intimately because he is your father and has invited you into relationship with him, which he made possible through Jesus' work on the cross. After he sets the tone and says, this is what is primary, to pray our father, to recognize his holiness, to recognize his place in heaven. Then he begins to pray the things that we should request of God. So Jesus taught taught his disciples to pray for God's kingdom rule. May your kingdom come. Now, this is interesting. He says, why is Jesus telling us to pray, may your kingdom come when God is ruler and sovereign over all? Well, we know that at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, they gave away what God gave to them by eating the apple and by giving that authority over to the devil. And Jesus calls the devil the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. So the devil came to Jesus uh, in the desert and said, I will give you the kingdoms of this world if you worship me. Why could he do that? Why could he say that statement? Well, because it had been given to him through Adam and Eve. That's why he could say that. But Jesus said, no, not your way, not the quick way, 
but my father's way. And then at the cross, Jesus took the kingdoms back. So even though God was sovereign, there was rulership on earth that had been given away, which Jesus restored at the cross through his death and resurrection and the final defeat of Satan. And so now Jesus tells his disciples and tells us to pray for God's kingdom to come. So that kingdom that Jesus inaugurated at his death and resurrection that he taught about throughout his ministry, that he gave examples of throughout his ministry, he now says, pray that that will increasingly be our experience and reality on earth through my presence, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, through the people of God until it is fully here when Jesus returns. He says, that is what I want you to pray. And so God pushes back the forces of darkness through the presence of the kingdom of God that Jesus took victory over. And he speaks against the idols that we try and build up, the idols of money, the idols of of self, anything that we give our allegiance to and we say, no, God, you're not the holy one, something else is. And he says, no, my kingdom will push back those idols and conquer those forces and bring to reality that which was won at the cross and the grave. That is what we pray for when we say, may your kingdom come. For the success of Jesus' ministry inaugurated at his death and resurrection where Satan was defeated and where authority was taken back. So we pray, may your kingdom come. We sing, God, may your kingdom reality become our increasing reality and may that happen through us, your people, as we exhibit that kingdom reality wherever we go because God is present with us through his Holy Spirit. And so we bring God's kingdom to whatever room we walk into if we are followers of Jesus. May your kingdom come. In the Jewish world, they saw synagogue and coming together in worship in synagogue as a sign of a kingdom, of the kingdom, as an expression of the kingdom of God. So when we come together to worship as God's people, what we are saying, this is what a kingdom reality looks like. How we treat each other, how we worship, how we pray. We're saying this is a picture of the kingdom of God when God's people are gathered. This is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And then he says, I want you to take that to the streets and pray that it would come to your lives, to your homes, to Burnaby, to Vancouver, and to the world. That this reality would come an increasing reality and we get to be partners and agents of God's kingdom because we are his people. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for God's will to prevail. May your kingdom come and your will be done is what the Lord's prayer says. So what is God's will? Now most people who come and ask for God's will and prayer for God's will, usually it's some very practical decision. Where should I work? Where should I live? Uh, Who should I marry? Who should I date? Uh, things like that, the most practical decisions of life. And those are important decisions, but that's not what Jesus told us to pray for here. See, by praying for God's will to be done on earth as as it is in heaven, we are praying for a much greater and far-reaching prayer that is overarching to our personal situations. Sarah Maynard, uh, the author, I like how she put it when she said, God wills that he could tangibly and gloriously dwell with his people that none would die spiritually, for perfect unity in the church, for marriages and families to be strong and healthy, for the gospel to be proclaimed in every nation, in every language, for the church to be a house of prayer, for justice to be established on earth, for the name of Jesus to be exalted above every other name. When we pray for God's will to be done in Burnaby or Vancouver or the world, we're praying that God's kingdom would be made manifest through us, as I just said. We're praying that God's name would be glorified. 
We're praying that people would see that God is holy and would worship him. We're praying at that level. That is what Jesus is telling us to pray for. So how does what job should I take fit into that? See, often what we do is we mix up the order of our prayer. We, be, we begin with, God, I need help. God, I have a decision. God, I'm ill. I want healing. God, I'm short of cash. I need money. Or something very practical. Rather than saying, God, you are sovereign. Your name is holy. I give my life to you. God, I align myself with you. God, my identity is in you. My hope is in you. God, I do not fear because you have conquered fear. See, it's the progression that Gwen and I went through from God, you need to heal my wife. Saying, God, you are sovereign. I trust you in this. We're going to ask for healing still. But now we're asking on the other side of that, we trust you. We don't trust you because you heal. We trust you because you are God. We don't trust you because you answered our prayer. We trust you because you are God. You are faithful. You are just. You are holy. You are sovereign. You are loving. You are kind. And anytime we are praying and trying to make a decision and we know that there's one decision that leads us closer to exemplifying the will of God and the kingdom of God, then we are closer, moving in the right direction in terms of the decision we need to make. That is the reality of what he calls us to. That is what he invites us to. And that's how we pray the big things and the small things. It's that alignment with his will. And this is exhibited in Jesus' life most profoundly in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus goes to the cross. So Jesus is praying, and in Matthew 26 it says, uh, and going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, now listen to this request. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, Dad, if there's another way to do this, instead of going to the cross, that's what I'm asking for. And then he prayed, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now think about this. The Son of God, the one who says, this is how you pray, the one who's most intimate relationship with the Father, is praying to the Father and saying, Dad, is there another way? Please, is there another way? And what was Dad's answer? No. No, there's not another way. There's not another way. I mean, think of that. Jesus' most profound, probably most heartfelt, most anguished emotional prayer His father says no. And then Jesus shows his commitment to holy be your name when he says, if not my will, then your will. Because dad, I know your will's best. Even though what I see in front of me scares me. But I know your will is best. To me, this is the most profound prayer in scripture because it shows us the humanity of Christ, how he struggled with what we struggled with, And yet he says, not my will, Father, but your will. Because I know that's the best place to be. And finally, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray for God's kingdom reality to be experienced on earth. For God's kingdom reality to be experienced on earth. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. So what are we praying? What we're praying is may this world reflect heaven more and more and more each day. May this world reflect heaven more and more and more each day. We're asking for the fullness of the kingdom reality of heaven to be evident in this world, which means that will happen through the people of God because God is present in his people and works through his people. So that is how that will happen as each life is changed and transformed and says, God, not my will, but your will. 
for your glory because holy is your name. Now, what is God's kingdom? How is it defined? Well, listen to these descriptors. God's kingdom is wisdom and peace and grace and beauty and truth and holiness and justice and mercy and healing and miracles and abundant life and unity and creativity and generosity and power and authority and that just names a few. That is what we are praying when we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It impacts everything, our families, our finances, our parenting, the way we work, the way we do business, how we do community. It, it is interwoven into everything we do because we are part of the people of God. We are siblings together in the family of God. And God is our Father. And because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we do not focus on building our own kingdom, but his kingdom. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you think about it. What is in heaven? Is there disease in heaven? No. Is there, is there pain and suffering in heaven? No. Is there conflict in heaven? No. Is there greed in heaven? No. Is there poverty in heaven? No. So what are we praying? We are praying for the eradication of those things on earth because we are praying for heaven to come to earth. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. And that is why we can, we can always pray bold prayers. Sometimes we are, we are inhibited in praying bold prayers for healing or for God's presence. And we say, God say, no, no, this is his reputation, not ours. Because he's the one who answers prayer. So when we pray, may your kingdom come, and that is exhibited in praying for healing, we can pray boldly because the answer to that prayer is not dependent on us, it's dependent on him. And whether he chooses to answer in the way we want or not, that is up to him because he is sovereign, and we are committed to his will, not to ours. We have our desires, and we want to be honest about those. I'm going to pray for healing if someone's ill. But I submit that healing to God. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. And it is his will, not mine, that I want done. But there will be days when we struggle. There will be days when we say, God, I don't know. God, I'm not sure. God, I'm doubting. I had one of those days, in this, well, one of those days, one of those seasons of my life, 2008, I was struggling with a bunch of stuff in ministry and, and I was on a sabbatical and part of that sabbatical was a missions trip to Africa to see which uh, places there we could work with our church. And I ended up in Mozambique at this, uh, this ministry and I was there at a worship night one night at this mission base. And in the midst of that, I was crying out to God. I was saying, God, I don't understand. I thought we'd been faithful. Why is this happening? Why is it, you know, I had all the why questions. And in the middle of that, I was so overcome. I was literally laying on my face on the floor worshiping. Now, you got to understand, I'm a German. I don't do that. Like Germans stand up straight, right? Like we don't, you know, this is as demonstrative as I get. So I'm on my face and I'm just praying, pouring my heart out to God. As I'm doing that, and there's people worshiping all around me, it's, it's a typical African worship service is going on for hours and hours. And I'm lying there and I feel a hand on my shoulder. And in that moment, I knew it was a person, but in my, I didn't even look up. In my mind, it's like Jesus had sat down beside me and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, I know what you're going through. I'm with you. You can trust me. I love you. I died for you. You're my kid. Your father loves you. There's no better place to be than in my arms. Not one of my why questions got answered. But everything changed. Because I came out of that prayer time going, where else would I want to be? Who else would I trust? Who else am I going to give my worship to? Who else would I give my time and attention to? What other person, what other leader would I would be any better, even close to Jesus? Absolutely none. 
And I came out of that just, okay, your will, not mine. When I opened my eyes, a friend of mine actually was sitting beside me. They had walked across the room because the Spirit of God had prompted them and said, go find Willie. And they, had, they couldn't see me in the room. They walked through until they found me, sat down beside me, put their hand on my shoulder, and just sat there. And when I opened up my eyes, I saw actually a puddle beside me from their tears. And they said to me, that wasn't me crying, that was God showing you his emotion. That didn't come from me. They said, that welled up inside of me. I didn't know where it came from, but that was God actually showing you. See, friends, the Lord says, I am present with you. Daddy, Abba, King of kings and Lord of lords, whose name is holy. And that is why we trust him. Because he is the one who is our father from the very beginning of time says, I want an intimate relationship with you. And that is why you pray this way for kingdom purposes first. And next week we will get into the daily bread and the forgiveness and the basic things that we all struggle with. But he said, first things first. And that is what he gives us in the Lord's prayer as he teaches us how to pray. So let us stand in closing and recite the Lord's prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this teaching that runs so deep You are our Father, Daddy, Abba, who wants an intimate relationship with us. And you call us first to recognize who you are as our Creator, as the one who is sovereign, as the one who is holy, as the only one who deserves our time and our allegiance, the one from whom everything has been given to us. And I thank you for that. And in that place, as we say, your will be done, not mine that that is the place that our prayers are answered. That is a place of, of desperation we often come to where we learn how to pray. That is the place where we discover who you really are and we actually discover ourselves in you. So this morning, Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who's at that place of saying, God, I want relationship with you. And you can do that by simply praying after me. Jesus, come and forgive my sin. Come and fill me with your presence. Remove my guilt. Remove my shame. Conquer my fear. And fill me with your spirit. And show me what it means to follow you every day. And Father, for Christ followers here who are struggling, who are wondering about your guidance and your leadership, who are wondering about where you are, Lord. Father, I pray you would meet each one through the power of your spirit. I pray they could give their anxiety or their fear or their concern or their pain or their illness and just give it to you and say, Lord, not my will, but your will. And Lord, we will continue to pray for answers, continue to pray for provision, for people to come to faith, for healing, for our illnesses. But Lord, we say, not our will, but yours, for your glory, for your name is great and the only one to be praised. Father, be with us as we go into into this week to be your people to make the kingdom of God manifest among us. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.